Hey there, and welcome to episode number 41 of the Food as Medicine show with Dr. Ann, the place to be for real talk with real people and real results, so you can heal yourself naturally. I'm your host, Dr. Ann, and I'm a board-certified pharmacist and health coach specializing in treating cholesterol without medications. You can learn more about me at drann.com, spelled A-N-H as in healthy. Hey, Food as Medicine listener. I have two quick announcements today before we get to the episode. First, I'm really excited to announce that I'm coming to Los Angeles, California next weekend. There's a health conference that I decided to attend at the last minute, and I also thought, hmm, maybe I should have a meetup. So I am planning one for Monday, August 24th. So if you're in the LA area and you want to meet up with me and all the other amazing people who listen to the Food as Medicine show, then make sure you go to drann.com and sign up for our email list by Saturday, August 22nd, so I can notify you when the details are finalized. Secondly, as you probably know by now, I love doing this podcast. I pretty much dedicate all my free time to it, and I also personally fund the production of the show. And while I enjoy doing it, it's becoming quite an expensive hobby. So I wanted to let you know, in case you weren't aware, that one way you could support the show is if the guests ever share a favorite book or product, I provide some links on their show notes page, where if you use the link that I provide to purchase the product, I get a very small commission for referring you. So when you listen to a guest and you find that you're really resonating with what they're sharing and you want to learn more about their favorite books and brands, I hope you consider purchasing through my link in order to support the show. In addition, to defray the cost of producing the show, I'm starting to look at potential sponsors. But I want you to rest assured that I would only have a company sponsor the show if I personally used or believe in their products or services. Companies that will make your life healthier, easier, and better, and that make the world a better place. So if you own such a company or you know someone who does who would like to get in front of the Food as Medicine community, then please have them email me at ann at drann.com. And I don't think I say this enough, but I want to sincerely thank you for listening in, for leaving ratings and reviews, for contacting me on my website, and for leaving me messages. While I'm not always the best at responding, please know that I read all the messages and they make me smile and warm my heart. And they help keep me going with the show. So thank you so much. Now, before we get to the episode, I want to let you know that the opinions expressed on this show may not represent my opinions, and the show is for general information only, not a substitute for medical care. So prior to beginning any new health program, I recommend you consult with a qualified health professional. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Isabella Wentz, who is someone I've been wanting to get on the show for a really long time. She's a pharmacist who was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and subclinical hypothyroidism in 2009 at the age of 27, although she felt much older, like she was 72 years old. Over the next three years, she used her background as a pharmacist and spent an enormous amount of time and money to heal herself. She's read various books, spent countless hours researching medical journals, health blogs, and making herself a human guinea pig. After much perseverance, time, trial, and error, she has successfully put her Hashimoto's in remission. In today's episode with Dr. Wenz, we talk about the root causes of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, common nutrient deficiencies and how to replete them, recommended optimal ranges for thyroid hormone testing, which diet is 88% effective in improving Hashimoto's symptoms, whether it is possible for people with Hashimoto's or thyroid problems to come off of their medications, and more. All right, let's go chat with Dr. Wentz. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Food as Medicine show. Today, I'm very excited. I have the incredible honor of speaking with Dr. Isabella Wentz, who is a pharmacist who has dedicated herself to addressing the root causes of autoimmune thyroid disease after being diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis in 2009. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause. And she's an ardent champion of incorporating lifestyle change and functional medicine into the treatment of autoimmune disease. Welcome, Isabella, to the show. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm so excited. Just, you know, I was geeking out beforehand, just so excited to have you on the show. Um, You know, I'm on your list. I've been following you for a long time. I kind of know your story, but in case people who are listening don't know your story, can you share a little bit about, you know, how you learned that you had Hashimoto's um, thyroiditis and, uh, you know, your path to healing? 
Yeah, absolutely. And just in full disclosure, I was never interested in the thyroid during pharmacy school. That was just not that exciting. And I, I don't know about you, but we probably had one lecture on thyroid in, in all of pharmacy school. And that lecture covered hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. And there was a tiny little sentence in my lecture notes that most cases of hypothyroidism are autoimmune. And I think also they mentioned that um, that Synthroid or levothyroxine was the drug of choice. And that was pretty much all I learned about the thyroid other than, of course, the symptoms. And so it just didn't seem very interesting until, of course, I myself became diagnosed in 2009 with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, this was after about probably eight or nine years of pretty debilitating fatigue. Mm. When I was in my undergrad, I developed Epstein-Barr virus mono. And then after that point, I just was tired all the time. And you know, I kept going from doctor to doctor and I kept going, you know, having progressively more and more symptoms year after year. I started developing irritable bowel syndrome. Then it was like acid reflux, then bloating. Then then I started oh my losing goodness. my hair and carpal On top milk. of going to pharmacy school. Yeah, this was during, <laughs> during my first year in pharmacy school. I think I started the irritable bowel syndrome and it was like every single year and to the time where I was getting married at 25. Um, by the time I was 20, you know, 25 and a half, my husband's like, what happened? You're falling apart. You know, you now you have acid reflux. And then the next year it was carpal tunnel. And I just, you know, I thought I was pretty knowledgeable about healthcare and thought I was pretty savvy, but I, you know, didn't really get any answers. And finally, I just, you know, have, having worked as a pharmacist for a little while, I kind of realized that there were, you know, really, really great doctors and there were okay doctors and that maybe I needed to go to the really great ones to try to figure out what was wrong with me. And that's how I came across the diagnosis of Hashimoto's. And at first I was really, really excited because I said, okay, finally I have an answer to all of my years of fatigue. But then it didn't really make a lot of sense because I had a lot of these symptoms of hypothyroid. And then I had symptoms of hyperthyroid. I was really anxious. I had palpitations. I was kind of like wired, but tired and losing weight, then gaining weight. So it was, it was kind of all over the place. And then the other thing that didn't really make sense to me was that this was an autoimmune condition. So we learned, I think another thing we learned in pharmacy school was that thyroid function kind of slows down with age. And as you get older, you're going to have, you know, a slower, slower thyroid, more sluggish thyroid. And I was prepared for that. I was like, sure, when I'm 80 or 90, I can start thyroid meds and that'll be perfect. But I was sort of like, okay, I, I was 26, 27 at the time. And I thought to myself, what's going on? Why did I develop this condition at this young age? You know, were there lifestyle factors that contributed to this condition? And are there any lifestyle interventions I can, I can incorporate to help myself to feel better, to maybe prevent the progression of the condition? And, you know, secretly, I really, really wanted to reverse the condition. And I, you know, I was like, this, I can do this. I can do this. And, um, of course, being a pharmacist, I was very skeptical. Like, I'm sure you were coming into um, yes. functional medicine. And I, the very first thing I looked for was actually um, medications that could modulate the immune system. So I came across low-dose naltrexone, and then I went into PubMed trying to look for articles that were peer-reviewed that can give me some information on things I can do. And I came across an article about celiac disease and, uh, and Hashimoto's connection. A certain percentage of people with subclinical hypothyroidism were able to reverse their conditions through... Um, just basically going on a gluten-free diet. So I was like, I took all this information to my endocrinologist and I was like, I came with, with like a little binder of stuff and I was like, hey, you know, let's talk <laughs> about this. And he just kind of looked at me and was like, uh, do you want Synthroid or do you want Lavoxo? Like that's, you know, those are your two choices. Like there's nothing else you can possibly do. Nothing else is going to help, you know, be glad. And, you know, he was very, very kind, but he was kind of like, you know, there's I wish there was more we could do, but there's nothing else that you can do to make yourself better. Just take medications, right? And we'll mm -hmm. test you for other autoimmune conditions. And, you know, I didn't really like that answer. So I just got on this, my own journey. And I just started making myself a little bit of a human guinea pig and tried, it, tried, out, tried out different foods and supplements and, you know, got into the world of functional medicine. And I was able to, um, you know, eliminate all of my symptoms within a few weeks of changing my diet. So that was pretty amazing. Um, then I worked on reducing my thyroid antibodies to get myself into remission. And that was through a lot of functional medicine interventions, as well as the diet, of course. Sure. That's kind of that in a nutshell. <laughs>
Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting um, that, well, first I was hoping you'd say, oh, you know, I was diagnosed and I just wanted to seek the nutritional intervention right away. But I know it, it makes sense coming from our backgrounds. Like we would think, okay, how do we treat this from the medical perspective first? And, um, but, you know, following your journey, like eventually it came to the nutritional interventions. Um, I'm curious because you wrote this book, right, about lifestyle changes. How much of um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis can be um, managed by by lifestyle and by diet in particular. You know what I found with um, just with myself and work, with working with clients and my readers who um, who write to me based on reading the book and try, uh, trying out some of the interventions is that um, certain percentage of people can actually completely reverse their Hashimoto's just by proper nutrition. So they'll go um, maybe gluten-free or maybe it's a, another kind of more complicated nutritional approach for them. And they'll be able to get rid of their thyroid antibodies, get rid of their symptoms, and some of them will actually be able to wean off of medications. So, um, so this, is, this is probably the smallest percentage of people. Then the next kind of um, cluster of people will actually be able to dr dramatically reduce their antibodies or get them in the, in the um in the reference range that's considered normal for most people through nutritional interventions. And then another, and that's kind of a, a little bigger piece of the pie. And then another big subset of people, I would probably say somewhere, um, you know, majority of people are actually gonna feel much better. So they'll be able to eliminate, you know, one or more symptoms through the nutritional intervention. So the symptoms that I often see people feeling better with are gonna be fatigue, weight gain, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, hair loss, things like that can really respond very, very well to nutritional interventions. And, and you know, and some people may need to continue take, to take thyroid medications and some people may need to, um, may not completely eliminate their thyroid antibodies, but nutrition, I would say for 90% of the time is gonna make people feel better. I recently did a survey with, with my community of about, um, about 2,000 people, a little bit more than 2,000 people replied to the survey and those that tried the gluten-free diet, about 88% said that it actually made them feel better. So, wow. you know, overall, I say with nutrition, if, you know, if you're nourishing your body and feeding it well, you really, there's nothing to lose for you other than, you know, the, the calories, the chemicals, and, and all of the food sensitivities. So um, that's definitely one of the interventions I recommend for everybody with an autoimmune condition. And for some people, it can be you know, essentially like a functional cure for, for their condition, because as long as they're on the diet, they're not going to have any kind of um, symptom or even kind of thought that they have the condition, the autoimmune condition. Yeah. You know, if we ever had a drug that had 88% success, it would be a blockbuster, right? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. So um, for the gluten-free diet, are you um, saying it, you know, the person needs to be completely gluten-free because, you know, there's the, the every so often. It, so I know um, Dr. Tom O'Brien says it's like you're either gluten-free or you're not. It's kind of like you're pregnant or you're not. So do you kind of subscribe to that same philosophy? You're either gluten-free or you're not? You know, I do. I, I tend to be a more strict with the gluten-free diet. So I do recommend that people, if they have an autoimmune condition, especially if they have celiac disease, that they stay 100% gluten-free to their best to their best abilities. Um, you know, not to say that at some point we won't figure out a way where you can have a little bit, you know, some people can maybe get to that point. You know, I myself have been gluten-free for now four years, four and a half years. And that's something that I would recommend um, indefinitely for people that want to feel good and keep their mm -hmm. conditions in remission. So if, if yeah. that ever changes, I'll let, I'll let everybody know. So. And really, it's not that hard, you know, eating gluten-free, once you get past the initial craving, it's just, um, you learn to develop different tastes, and you learn to cook a different way, and then you just enjoy different flavors, and I, I don't think it's hard at all um, once, you, once you get used to it. You know, it's a ha it's like anything, it's a habit. So so now, um, you know, people, people will say, like, well, what happens if you eat gluten? And I'll be like, I don't really know, I haven't had it for so long, but I just <laughs> make a habit of it, so every time I you know, I cook at home and we have our routine and we have the foods that we like to make and it's, and they're always going to be gluten-free. And then if I go out to eat, I'm always asking for the gluten-free menu. 
you know, in some places it's easier than others. Um, part of the reason we live in Boulder, Colorado, but um, yeah, it's definitely something that once you get started on the path and just keep up with it for, I would say the first three months was probably the hardest. And then after that, it's, it's, it gets pretty easy. You get into a routine and, and it, it, you, your taste buds do change and you feel so much better and you're, you're like, why did I ever want to eat that? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, so tell us about um, that first three months, right? So um, as with any changes, it's always a little bit harder at the beginning. So how did you overcome some of those challenges um, that you could share so that people who are undergoing um, or wanting to undergo the same steps um, can kind of troubleshoot those challenges? You know, it, for me, as kind of a skeptical scientist, it took me a lot of time to research and look at um, the gluten-free diet. And I had, I made myself like a notebook of different foods I was going to make. And I just kind of like went into research mode and I kind of got stuck in paralysis by analysis. So mm -hmm. it took me about a year before I, from the time I found out that the gluten-free diet is going to be helpful to me to the time I tried it. And I wouldn't recommend for people to, to do that for too long because during that year, my body was attacking my thyroid gland and you know, during that year, I was having acid reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, and I was exhausted. So one thing, if I can encourage you is, is take the step, you know, take, um, take a few weeks, maybe to prepare and then take the plunge, you know, you're, um, of course, it's best to get yourself ready. Um, definitely look at recipes, definitely look at meal, trying to make a meal plan, think about something that you can have for breakfast, think about something you could have for lunch and dinner and for snacks, because, you know, there are, um, there are, you know, morphine-like substances in gluten and dairy, so gluteomorphins and casomorphines that can actually cause withdrawal-like symptoms when you first get off of the foods. So I remember I was kind of in a daze and a fog when I first went gluten and dairy-free. It was just it just felt really weird, and I didn't know what to eat because I had you know bread with cheese for for lunch, you know, most days or whatnot, or or a protein smoothie with whey protein and milk for breakfast. So it was kind of getting um, really thinking about what you're going to have and prepare. So you don't, um, what's that saying? If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. So just try to get yourself ready, but don't take too long. Um, for some people, if they're really, really having a hard time with it, I'll actually recommend food sensitivity testing so they could see in black and white that the foods are causing inf inflammation in their bodies because um, some of the food sensitivity tests will pick that up, but it's much less expensive just to kind of try it out. Um, I have a gluten-free quick start guide on my website. If anybody is interested, it's um, thyroidpharmacist.com slash gift. And that's got a nice guide for you guys um, to make sure that you, you basically do the gluten-free diet right the first time around. Um, the first time I started doing it, I, I did get a lot of benefits from it, but I was eating a lot of gluten-free junk food. So that's not necessarily something I'd recommend. I'd recommend, you know, kind of focusing when you're, let's say you're going to the grocery store, focus on meats and vegetables and you really can't go wrong there. Yeah. And I love that um, in your, your free guide, you also include recipes for people to, to get started. So um, I really think that's a great gift and um, we'll definitely link it up in the show notes as well. Uh, so thank you for offering that. Um, so I was curious too, the, uh, the functional, um, sorry, the elimination diet, you mentioned that you recommend, um, allergy testing, right? Or sensitivity testing. Um, so when do you recommend sensitivity testing versus when do you recommend the elimination diet? You know, it's, it's kind of, it depends on the person. So usually if I'm working with a person, I'll kind of try to figure out what, what their level of commitment is and what they're kind of ready for. And for some people, you know, for me, I was like, I need to see it in black and white and I wanted something more, I guess, objective. So I chose the food sensitivity route at first. Um, for another person, they may not have, you know, my insurance covered it, so I was really lucky, but not everybody may have the insurance or the financial resources or the access. And, and if they're very highly motivated to get themselves better, then the elimination diet would be where to start. Um, the elimination diet is actually the gold standard for food sensitivities to try to figure them out. It's going to be much more accurate, much less expensive than food sensitivity testing, but it's, it's a little bit harder to, to implement than just, you know, going out and saying like, here, take my blood. Right. So it's going to be something that you do have to prepare for. Um, I would recommend getting off of the most 
common reactive foods, which would be gluten, dairy, soy, eggs, nightshades, nuts, and seeds, um, and grains for at least a three-week period, and then create yourself a journal to see how you felt before you started on this journey, and then how you felt during. And then what you do is then you start introducing one food at a time, and then you have that food. Um, you know, you can have it on a daily basis for the period of four days, and then see how you react to it. So you write down where the food sensitivity appears. So it would be, okay, if it's, um, you know, for a lot of people, they'll say that they feel gluten in their stomach and then mm. in their brain. So for example, some people might have brain fog, they might be irritable, they might be more tired from gluten. You know, from dairy, a lot of people will say that they will have gut reactions to it, like acid reflux or irritable, irritable bowel or bloating, but they might also have sinus reactions or asthma or more coughing, more phlegm. So looking at where these things appear. So, um, you know, the elimination diet is something that is really good if you're very much in tune with your body. I think had I started it at the beginning of my journey, I'm not sure that I would have been very enough in, in tune enough with myself because I was constantly blocking my symptoms with acid suppressing medications and antidiarrheals and just basically taking a lot of over-the-counter meds to really shut my body up for lack of a better word to um to really i was not really listening to my body so that's something else to to consider that you really want to be in tune with yourself before you, you know, that's a really diet yeah, that's such a good point because I remember the first time I did it, um, I, I knew right away that when I reintroduced gluten that I had a reaction to it, um, but I wasn't ready to let go of some other foods, and um, so I didn't really reintroduce them properly. Um, so I want to do another one uh, this time around and do it properly, um, but I think you're right because like, if you're not ready to accept the results of the test, then, um, then I think that's not, then it's not a step you should take um, until you're ready. Um, so with regards to the food sensitivity test, have you seen that it correlates pretty well with um, what they see on the test and what they are actually sensitive to? So there's a few different tests out there on the market and some of them are um, you know, preferred by different clinicians. I personally have had really good results with all the test labs and it's not used very commonly by a lot of doctors. Um, my doctor in Chicago, Dr. Elena Coles, was a big fan of it and she um, tested me for it and then I started recommending it to a lot of and I and for me it was kind of spot on it was like oh peaches and then it was like wow I do react to peaches and so um, I was very much impressed with the results then and then I started recommending them to friends and family members and then to clients and and since that point I've seen pretty consistent results with that specific test and you know I don't have percentage wise but I've, um, you know, I've had it repeated multiple times on myself and it's, it's very consistent and it seems very accurate. So, so the foods that I used to be sensitive to, you know, I'll still react to, but maybe at a smaller scale. And then, you know, kind of through, um, through accidental testing, it, my reactions will be lessened. So it, it, it does correlate very, very well to me and, and my clients from, from what I've been able to gather. Sure. So we talked about diet being a root cause and um, specifically, you know, gluten, dairy and soy and um, and then the less the other uh, foods that you mentioned. So are there any other common root causes that you've seen um, of Hashimoto's in particular and or autoimmune disease in general um, that we can kind of address right now? So um, as, as far as foods go, so you're right, absolutely right, gluten, dairy, and soy are some of the most common reactive foods. And then some people may also react to eggs, nightshades, seeds, nuts, as well as potentially grains. So these are some root causes to think about where, where their food reactions. Um, other types of things that I always look at are going to be nutrient deficiencies. So especially in selenium, vitamin B12, um, ferritin as well as vitamin D. So basically getting enough of those nutrients on board is going to help reduce the autoimmune attack on the thyroid gland or improve thyroid function or make the person feel better. Usually one, one or more of the above for each nutrient deficiency. And then um, another thing is looking at um, poor stress response. So people may have issues with their adrenals where their adrenals are not producing the right amounts of 
um, stress hormones throughout the day or they're just not producing hardly any stress hormones and then the person's thyroid gland is more susceptible to autoimmune attack and then we're looking at um, gut infections so um, intestinal permeability has been considered to be a, uh, one of the three keys to autoimmune disease and that's no different in Hashimoto's we don't typically think of our thyroid connecting to the gut but it definitely is very well connected so people with um, Hashimoto's are almost always going to have gut issues. Sometimes they're going to be silent issues, so they may not know about this. Um, you know, other types of infections can also trigger Hashimoto's. So infections, some people will have infections in their sinuses, infections in their teeth, um, viral infections, bacterial infections. There's a whole variety of different infections through molecular mimicry. They basically... Um, they look like our thyroid to the immune system and the immune system begins to attack the infections and attacks the thyroid gland as well. And then the other big category that I would put um, into the root causes would be toxins. So toxins, um, you know, people who were exposed to radiation, people who are exposed to high levels of mercury, um, um, people who are even, at, I would say, have toxic or excess levels of of you know estrogens things like that those can actually cause um, trigger autoimmune thyroid disease as well so those those are kind of the categories that I really would pay attention to is looking at the food sensitivities nutrient deficiencies stress response toxins as well as infections okay those those are some good buckets um, so I guess we've covered the food sens sensitivities um, with regard to the nutrient deficiencies do you find that medications are contributing to a lot of the those or is it mainly just poor diets you know definitely medications and diets so the standard American diet is nutrient deficient as as you well know um, and that's just going to come with the territory but medications as you're aware as a pharmacist you know are, are definitely going to be causing nutrient depletion. So, you know, some of those commonly medications, most commonly used medications are going to be oral contraceptives as well as proton pump inhibitors. So um, I like to kind of get on my soapbox about proton pump inhibitors because they can reduce our stomach acid levels and then we don't absorb our iron or B12 properly. We're more susceptible to gut infections. We're more susceptible to H. pylori, which can be a trigger for autoimmune thyroid disease we no longer are able to digest our foods properly because we need stomach acid to digest our foods. And then we're more likely to develop food reactions or food sensitivities to the foods that we're eating. So I think out of proton pump inhibitors, you know, I think they're probably the medications that can be most problematic for people with um, autoimmune thyroid disease. And one of the things that not a lot of people are aware of is that people with Hashimoto's usually have low stomach acid. And so but the low stomach acid can make give people symptoms of acid reflux and then they get put on proton pump inhibitors and that just makes the whole situation even worse because it further suppresses the stomach acid. So, so yeah, though, I definitely think those medications can be a, a big issue for people. And um, there's, there's a whole list of um, nutrient depleting drugs and our friend Susie Cohen has a great book on that that covers, you know, all of the different medications that you could be potentially taking and how they can deplete us of various nutrients. Yeah. Um, well, and I noticed that the the chapter that you offer for free um, for, from your book deals with um, nutrient depletions. So I was curious if that, and, and diet and digestion. Um, so I was curious if, if you feel that those are the two biggest um, keys to um, finding the root cause and fixing the root cause of, of Hashimoto's. You know, I definitely think those are the, I like to recommend, I, I like to give away that chapter for free to people because those are the ways that people can feel better much, much quicker and right away. So when we think about food, you know, a lot of information is out there about the gluten-free diet helping with thyroid. So I feel like people already have a lot of that information and I'm glad for that. But the nutrient deficiencies, you know, if somebody's already on a good diet, even if they're not, you know, getting enough selenium on board getting enough of the iron and B12 on board and vitamin D can really turn a person's symptoms around and um, getting a stomach acid support supplement like the betaine with pepsin that I recommend can really, you know, virtually overnight can turn around a person's energy levels. And that, that was kind of my case. I was, um, I was already on a gluten-free diet and I was trying some things here and there and I was 
got, I got better, but I was still tired and I was, mm. I kind of hit a plateau and I began to feel more tired and I was like, you know, I'm developing new food sensitivities, what's happening here. And then I, I discovered the betaine with pepsin supplement. And all of a sudden it was like, I woke up with energy and I was like, wow, I, I had to sleep like 10 or 11 hours. And now I woke up, you know, after seven or eight bright eyed and bushy tailed. I, I always call it my, um, you know, like my superpower supplement because <laughs> it just made such a big difference to me. So I wanted to get that information out to people and w along with how to use it properly, because if you just take it willy nilly, you're not going to get good results. So you have to figure out your target dosage of that. Um, and that's what I have in the free book chapter. Cause it just, it can make such a big difference for people. And, and, you know, like, I, I feel like for, with autoimmune thyroid disease, so many people suffer from so many symptoms. Um, really one of the first steps is to get rid of the symptoms. And some people may be happy with just getting rid of, just having a little bit more energy or just losing a little bit of weight. And they may not want to really keep digging to try to find their root cause, but definitely feeling better will help them give them more energy and more kind of fuel for the fire to, to really dig at improving their health. Mm, yeah. You know, I think once people start feeling better, um, their immediate needs are met. And then I think they can start to think about, well, how do I make it optimal? Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. It's like, yeah. if you don't have, um, you know, if, if you don't have a roof over your head, you're not necessarily going to be thinking about new shoes. Right. Not that it's the same, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I totally understand. I am a shoe lover as well. So um. <laughs> I knew you were. <laughs> I could tell. So, no, but it, it's, it goes to the whole higher hierarchy of needs, right? So the very first need that we have is to feel better. Once we feel better, then we can look at our optimizing our clinical markers or you know, what is the most pressing and urgent symptom that a person has? And for me, it was the fatigue because it just, it just got in the way of everything, right? Yeah. So, okay, you were saying, um, you know, B12 and ferritin and selenium are also common deficiencies. So do you recommend supplements for those or do you recommend food first? How do you um, suggest people approach those deficiencies? So a lot of times people will say take Brazil nuts for selenium. And I think that's a really, really great suggestion, except, um, you know, you could take them, but if you want to be really precise, um, I would recommend taking a selenium supplement because studies have shown that the dosage to reduce thyroid antibodies is going to there is going to be specific. So right around 200 micrograms is the effective dose where a dose of hundred micrograms was not effective. And then selenium is kind of like a Goldilocks nutrient. So if you go too high on the dosage, you can have adverse reactions to it and toxicities. So, you know, you don't want to go above 800. The content of um, selenium in, in Brazil nuts can vary depending on the soil that they're grown in. So it can vary tenfold. So you don't know if, you're, if your Brazil nut has 40 micrograms or 400 micrograms of selenium. You know, on average, they'll say, each Brazil nut has about 100 micrograms, but you know you don't really know that because you can't. Most people are not going to go out and get their Brazil nuts tested, right? Yeah, and it's not readily published and available how much selenium each Brazil nut has. So I definitely recommend getting a selenium supplement for that. Um, with the vitamin D, I recommend getting your vitamin D from sunshine whenever possible. But, you know, we do need a lot of sunshine to get proper vitamin D levels. If your vitamin D is at like a 17, you know, going out for 10 minutes a day in Wisconsin is not going to do it for you. So, <laughs> so a lot of times you are going to need a supplement to get yourself up there. And mm -hmm. same goes with, with the ferritin. So obviously I, will, I would recommend, um, and ferritin for those listening is an iron storage protein. So it's like the most sensitive test to figure out if you are potentially anemic and it can be very much related to hair loss if you have a deficiency in that and energy levels. So um, one of the first things is making sure that, you know, that you are getting enough iron rich foods in your diet. So you are getting enough, you know, meats and red meats because those are primary where iron lives. Um, that's best absorbed by the body. And then looking at, um, are you absorbing that iron? So do you have enough stomach acid on board? So um, one of the things I recommend doing is is having either a digestive enzyme or like a betaine with pepsin to help your stomach acid or having some vitamin C along with your, with your iron containing foods or doing, you know, like orange juice or something like that to help with that absorption or, or hot lemon water. 
And then, um, you know, I remember that counseling point. (laughs) I remember the counseling point when talking about iron supplements. Okay. Yes, that's good. Right. Because iron needs to have an acidic environment to get absorbed. So if you don't have enough stomach acid on board and you're, you're eating all these great red meats, you're not going to break them down properly to extract the iron out. So Mm. that's something to consider, um, being tested for H pylori, because that can kind of um, basically steal our, um, su- steal our stomach acid and suppress our iron absorption um, is going to be a part of it. And, and definitely, you know, if your levels are too low, then taking an iron supplements. So it's, it's all about um, where your levels are at. And, you know, if you've been eating like liver every day, all day, and your iron levels are still low, then something to consider to, to change it up. Um, I do recommend sometimes desiccated liver, liver pills, so um, a lot of people have heard that liver is a very rich source of iron. And um, I've put out some recipes for liver on my website. I thought they were delicious, but, um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's different. Everybody has different tastes. <laughs> liver is not something you jump into. It's an acquired taste. Right, right. So some people may not be ready to to make their own, you know, liver pate, which some people are, some people aren't. So you always have the liver capsules as an option too. Um, I think Radiant Life is a pretty good company for that. Um, with the B12, I usually do recommend a supplement. Um, I would usually recommend a sublingual supplement for that. So that's something that you're going to do under the tongue and that gets absorbed better and it passes, it passes your stomach. Um, some people lack something known as intrinsic factor that basically needs to turn on B12. And when you take the B12 under the tongue, that kind of takes care of that problem. So um, yeah, and some people will do injections, but I found that sublingual will do um, almost as well as the injections for most cases. So and it's a little yeah. less frightening <laughs> for people. It's a little, yeah, it's a little less intimidating and a little less high maintenance than having to go and inject yourself and, going to the pharmacy and, and definitely much less expensive because you can buy a little bottle of something will um, B12 that has 5,000 micrograms per ml. And that can last you, you know, that, that can be maybe 10 to $20 versus the injections. You know, I remember I used to dispense those and depending on where you, you know, what pharmacy you worked at, sometimes they can be hundreds of dollars if they're not covered on insurance. Mm-hmm. So is there um, a specific dose of B12 that people um, typically need or it just is very specific to the person? You know, I don't like to do a lot of specific dosing for um, for selenium. I'll say 200 micrograms to 400 micrograms for vitamin D. It's going to vary based on your deficiency levels for iron. It's going to vary on your weight and, and you know, mm-hmm. where where you're at with um, with the B12. It's um, generally a water soluble vitamin. So having too much on board, you're not going to get in trouble other than you're going to be, you know, wasting, wasting your money and, and having some expensive pee. But, um, you know, usually the repletion dose is going to be, um, 5,000 micrograms. I would start that off, um, you know, once a week and then do that, um, for one month and then as maintenance once a month thereafter, but it, it, it's going to vary per person. So I do have kind of a suggested dose in the depletions chapter, um, that people can start with, but it, it's, you know, of course we don't want to say everything. It's not a one size fits all approach, of course. Sure. Great. Um, oh, you know, I'm going through my questions. I know we talked about food. I I had a listener submit a question about, um, cruciferous vegetables. Um, there's some confusion about if you have symptoms of hypothyroidism, whether you should avoid cruciferous vegetables. And so what's your take on that? You know, this is a very good question and it's, it's a, it, it causes a lot of controversy in the thyroid community. And basically there were studies that were done maybe in the fifties or sixties that talked about goiterogens. Um, and goiterogen is kind of a broad term. It may basically mean something that causes a goiter. And so it could be, you know, related to anything. And with respect to cruciferous vegetables, the way they could potentially cause a goiter is that they can interfere with iodine absorption into the thyroid gland. So if somebody has iodine deficiency related hypothyroidism, which is the primary cause of hypothyroidism in the world, in the underdeveloped world, especially where, um, you know, we don't add iodine to the salt supplies, 
then that can be a potential issue. Now, in countries like the United States and most of Europe, where um, we do add iodine to the salt supplies, most people are not going to be iodine deficient, and most people are going to actually have the potential of having excess iodine. So what I recommend um, you know, for those people is really cruciferous vegetables um, are not going to be creating a problem for you because Hashimoto's is not an iodine deficiency disorder. So it, it's something that is not related to Hashimoto's. So basically, if you have Hashimoto's, which is the primary cause of hypothyroidism, accounting for 97% of cases in the United States, um, then you're safe with your broccoli and kale. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, and well, and is it is it true that it also depends on the dose? If you, I mean, um, there were I think some case reports. If someone ate broccoli, um, or was it? I think it was bok choy um, for. Um, months on end, then it might cause a problem. But if, it, if it's just, you know, part of your balanced diet, that's fine. Okay. Well, I wanted to touch on actually proper testing of thyroid, um, you know, thyroid levels, TSH, uh, free T4, free T3. Um, and wanted to get your take on, you know, how does, um, how do you suggest that people test their thyroid in order to determine if they have um, Hashimoto's uh, or, you know, low thyroid? So that's a really good question, and one of the things that, one of the most common tests for thyroid function is a screening test known as TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and this test is really, really great for picking up really advanced cases of hypothyroidism, so if you've had it for 20 years, then it'll likely pick it up, but it's not <laughs> the best at picking up the, um, you know, the subtle changes that may be seen in the first maybe 10 10 years or so. And so a lot of people go undiagnosed when they just do that TSH test. And the other thing is when scientists first determined the normal reference range for people with, with, um, without thyroid disease, they thought they basically had a pool of blood of different people and accidentally they had people in there who actually had undiagnosed thyroid disease. So the reference range was really lax. And they were saying that if you had a TSH as high as an eight, you were considered normal. So, you know, for me, my TSH was like a 4.5 and I was, you know, like a, like a little, um, just sleepy all the time. And I was very sluggish. I was very forgetful. I was losing my hair and having all of these very, um, classic thyroid symptoms, you know, wearing two sweaters when everybody else was in a short sleeve shirt. And so, um, you know, really the TSH for most people without thyroid disease should be somewhere around one. And I'll hear from clients and, you know, thyroid patients will say that really for them to feel best, it needs to be somewhere between 0.5 and 2. Um, the reference range have, has been redefined to be um, no more than 2.5 by one association and then no more than 3 by another association. And I don't know if a lot of the lab companies just keep the old rep, have kept the old reference range. So, you know, you're not really going to be, you know, if your doctor has tested your TSH, and told you that everything is normal, make sure you get a copy of your own tests and kind of compare the numbers because sometimes these things can be missed. Oftentimes they are missed. Um, and that's gonna be the test for, for hypothyroidism. And um, this test could be normal for, like I said, for many years before a person gets diagnosed um, after the Hashimoto's process begins. So Hashimoto's is an autoimmune attack on the thyroid gland and that can actually be measured through antibodies. So we can actually test for antibodies to the thyroid gland in the blood. And those are the tests I actually recommend for figuring out if somebody has a thyroid disorder. Um, the two most common antibodies are going to be thyroid peroxidase antibodies, TPO antibodies, and then thyroglobulin antibodies or TG antibodies. Um, they're going to be elevated in 90 to 90 and 80% of people with Hashimoto's respectively. So that, that's a really great place to start for people. Um, you know, there is a small percentage of people who may not test positive for antibodies, but still have Hashimoto's. And so getting a thyroid ultrasound is always something good to do if you suspect that you may have a thyroid condition as well, because you'll be able to see some changes consistent with thyroid um, disease on the thyroid gland with that. Yeah. So, um, you know, what you just said about about 90%, was it that of people who have um, thyroid or low thyroid or hypothyroid actually in fact have Hashimoto's? I think that's fascinating. Um, 
that was never really pointed out to me in pharmacy school. So mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I don't even know how to like where to begin with that. You know, do you think it's because of the autoimmune um, component of it um, and the diet that caused the autoimmune um, reaction, or you know, where where do you think that that stems from? That ninety percent of cases are are autoimmune or, or um, Hashimoto's. You know, I think that's a really great question. And basically what I think why, you know, you may not have been aware of that and why I was never taught it in pharmacy school is because whether it's autoimmune or whatever the the root cause may be, um, conventional medicine would just treat it the same anyway. So they would just give that person thyroid medication. So they were not testing people for, um, you know, for thyroid antibodies, they were just saying, you have a sluggish thyroid here, take this medication. But, you know, when you really dig deeper, a lot of diseases have an autoimmune component. I recently learned that hypertension, I'm sorry, not, um, yeah, (laughs) it wasn't hypertension. It was something else. So let me scratch that thought. So yeah, I I recently learned about another kind of condition that may be, that may have autoimmune origins. And the, the more we learn, the more we figure out that a lot of, um, conditions are going to be due to an autoimmune response to the, to the body's own cells. Um, potentially, you know, looking at how the face or the, the common, you know, picture of thyroid disease has changed or evolved over the years. If a person doesn't have enough, um, starting materials to create thyroid hormones. So if a person is iodine deficient, for example, then they're not going to be able to produce enough thyroid hormones and they can become hypothyroid that way. And, So, you know, historically, that was the primary reason for hypothyroidism. And a lot of people, a lot of, you know, public health officials began to recommend that we add iodine to the salt supply of our foods. So then people stopped having iodine deficiency hypothyroidism, and they started having more rates of Hashimoto's. So they've done studies in countries where they, you know, they did a study before iodine was added to the salt supply. And they did the same population study, you know, 10 years after. And, you know, in some countries, the rates of Hashimoto's doubled, tripled, and in one country, they even quadrupled after the iodine was added to the salt supply. So, you know, iodine is another one of those Goldilocks hormones that it basically can, um, you know, you you need it in very specific amounts. So not having enough of it on board is going to cause thyroid problems. Having too much of it on board is going to cause thyroid problems. Iodine has been iodine and excess has been recognized as an environmental trigger for Hashimoto's. And the way that this potentially works is if somebody has excess iodine, then um, their body needs to, their thyroid gland needs to convert it to um, a usable form. And hydrogen peroxide is produced as a byproduct, which is um, reactive oxygen species and can cause some tissue damage to the thyroid gland. In um, a place where people have enough selenium on board, then that um, selenium is going to help neutralize that hydrogen peroxide and everything will go smoothly. But when there's not enough of the selenium on board, then this kind of damage goes unchecked and more damage and inflammation is happening in the thyroid gland. And, you know, that can signal immune cells to come into the thyroid gland. And once the immune cells are signaled, there's some sort of a communication breakdown where um, the body will begin to recognize the thyroid as a foreign invader. And, you know, different infections are thought to play a role, Um, you know, immaturity of different types of immune cells and proper immune cell development may play a role in that as well. So that's kind of the, you know, one of the theories of how Hashimoto's can potentially develop is with, um, with, you know, iodine as a potential trigger, you know, different toxin can act as a trigger. So if somebody has excess um, fluoride in their thyroid gland, that can, that can cause some damage to it. If somebody's exposed to radiation, if somebody has a viral infection inside of their thyroid gland. So all these different things can, um, can act as triggers for autoimmune thyroid disease. And we just, yeah, the, definitely the rates have been increasing. And one of the things they've connected was the, was the iodine. And then also people exposed to like nuclear disasters also have had really higher, much higher rates of thyroid antibodies as well. So we do know that toxins play a role. Sure. So I guess along those lines, then, um, do you recommend someone stop using iodized salt and using more of kind of like a Himalayan sea salt or uh, 
salts, a regular sea salt or real salt, um, and then using non-fluoridated um, or fluorinated um, toothpaste and that kind of thing? I do. So I recommend sea salt without iodine. And then I also recommend, um, you know, fluoride-free toothpaste as well as using a reverse osmosis filter to get fluoride out of the water supply. So fluoride is not something that we necessarily need. Um, I lived in the Netherlands last year and fluoride um, is not added to the water supply there and people there have just as nice teeth as, as you know, we do in America. Um, most of Europe has actually rejected fluoride as um, an addition to the water supply. A recent study came out at the beginning of the year from the UK. Now the UK has some parts of the country where they do fluoridate and some parts where they do not. And they actually compared the rates of thyroid disorders based on these regions. And they found that places where they do add fluoride to the water supply had significantly higher rates of hypothyroidism than places that did not. And this was done through the um, National Health Service because you know, in the UK, it's much easier to track these things because everybody has the national insurance mm -hmm. and access to health. So, so definitely if you have a thyroid condition, you know, I would, I would recommend getting off the fluoride and, and, you know, and I'm hoping things will change. There's different kind of organizations that you can get involved with, um, the fluoride action network to petition to get fluoride removed from our water supplies. Yeah, but until then, we can minimize our, our exposure to it. Um, so with regards to medications, you were saying, you know, uh, uh, here in Western um, medicine, they didn't really distinguish between Hashimoto's and uh, hypothyroid because the treatment would be the same, you know, the Synthroid, the Lavoxyl, right. et cetera. So um, if someone was on medication, is it possible for them to come off? I think you had mentioned earlier that there is a small subset of people who um, can completely be in remission um, through diet. So how, you know, how common is it to, to be able to come off of your medications or it just depends on the person? So, you know, I, I looked at a study. Um, I wanted to find this out when I was first looking, at, you know, into getting myself better. Like, what could I, what kind of realist, realistically expect? And I was looking at a study that found um, spontaneous remission in up to 20% of cases with Hashimoto's that those people were able to get off of medications and stay off of them for about a year. Um, and that was just kind of spontaneous. And then there's also um, studies, there was a couple of case reports. Um, one I have referenced on my website of a young woman who basically had Hashimoto's and then it went into remission and she was able to get off of her thyroid medications as well. Um, I've had that with a few clients. Um, it, it's definitely not the, the norm. So it, it's, kind of, um, it's kind of something that I would say is probably less than 10% of people who go into remission will be able to get off of their thyroid medications. But sometimes it does happen. So sometimes the thyroid tissue does regenerate. Um, and I'm currently working on some interesting protocols to help speed up that regeneration process. Um, you know, different things that may be helpful would be making sure your blood sugar is balanced. So, you know, when we don't have a balanced blood sugar that our tissues don't heal as well. Um, you know, doing things like ultra um, saunas, infrared saunas can be helpful. Um, low level laser therapy can be helpful for tissue regeneration, making sure you have enough iron on board, uh, making sure your adrenals are balanced and making sure you you have a lot of nutrients on board. Those can all be very helpful things to help to speed up the process of tissue regeneration. Um, and you know, for for most people, you know, definitely we want to see first getting rid of their symptoms, then getting rid of their antibodies, and then at that point, you know, thinking about medications. You know, I know some people will say like they'll have really high antibodies, they'll have symptoms all over the place, and they'll be like, I just want to get off of my medications. But it's you know, that's not really realistic because medications are the fastest way to get thyroid hormone into your body. If you've got all these antibodies and these raving symptoms, you're clearly deficient. And it, you know, it's, it can be actually unsafe for a person to try to get off of their thyroid medications when they're not ready. Um, only when the thyroid has regenerated itself is when I would start thinking about potentially, um, you know, weaning the person off. And you don't want to do just go cold turkey on thyroid medications because they get built into our bodies. So if somebody were to get off, then it would be, you know, maybe like um, tiny, tiny doses at a time, 25 micrograms at a time, and then retest and 
you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, some people will actually become hyperthyroid when they, um, their, their thyroid gland starts coming back. So that we see that sometimes happening as well. And other people, you know, may reduce their dosage of medication, maybe because they're absorbing it better. So some people, if they had, let's say, an infection that was preventing them from properly absorbing thyroid medications, um, clearing that infection is going to help them absorb the medication or gluten sensitivity too. So, so yeah, I wish I had a clear, I, I used to think that it was people who were younger that were more likely to regenerate thyroid tissue, but then I've seen people who were, you know, much older and had the disease for much longer that were able to get off of thyroid medication. And these people who were just newly diagnosed and young that, that weren't. So, um, yeah, I wish I had more, more insight on that, but for now, you know, that's something that I'm researching a bit more. Sure. Um, since we're on the topic of medications, I was curious, do you find, you know, there's some information out there with regards to the T4, the Synthroid versus um, getting the T3. So is there, um, do you find that there, some people have better success with giving straight T3 um, because of the conversion issue? Or does it just, again, depend on the person? So when you look at studies, uh, most will say that 90% of people can be made um, clinically euthyroid with um, basically T4 medications only. And, and basically that T4 works just fine for 90% of people. You know, with my experience, I would say that doesn't seem realistic. But, you know, I, obviously my people that come to me are going to be more biased or people are going to be coming, I'm going to be biased because the people coming to me are going to be having, um, you know, not the optimal results with their T4. So generally what I see is that most people actually do better on T4, T3 containing medications like an armor, nature throid, or compounded T4, T3. And, you know, part of the reason that of that is that T4 is actually a pro-hormone. So it needs to be converted into T3 in the body. And T3, for those listening at home, is the more active thyroid hormone. So it's going to be the one that is responsible for helping really boost up our metabolism, growing our hair, and giving us energy. And so, um, you know, on paper, we should convert our T4 to T3 just fine without any problems, but it doesn't always happen in the body like we wish it did. So some people, because of, you know, potentially genetic defects or nutrient deficiencies, you know, being under stress, you know, there's toxins, there's a whole list of reasons why a person may not properly convert T4 to T3. And so oftentimes giving the T3 inside of a medication makes a big difference in how people feel. Yeah. Well, and okay, so um, there's controversy about you're not getting a standardized dosage if you're doing the armor thyroid. What's your take on that? You know, I, I've, that was one of the kind of marketing things that when Synthroid first came out, that was one of their big, um, I guess, pearls that they would go in and, and detail the the physicians with. But, you know, since that time, there's been a lot that has changed in the manufacturing process. So back in the day, iodine was used as kind of a marker. So how much iodine was found in a batch was used as a marker to determine the dosage, which was not reliable because the different animals where the thyroid gland was harvested from could have different levels of iodine. So what they now do is they actually measure the levels of T4 and T3, and that's how they dose the medications. So they're going to be much more accurate than they were. Um, Nature Throid, so, you know, one of the, I guess, one measure of how how well controlled the medication is, their, its dosage is whether it's been recalled or not. So, you know, we, we there was a Levoxyl recall a few years ago, and Synthroid's been recalled. But, you know, Nature Throid, one of the manufacturers of um, a natural desiccated thyroid, they proudly state on their website that they have not been recalled for inconsistent dosages. So since they took upon um, making thyroid medication. So, you know, they, they do take their manufacturing very, very seriously. And they do, um, you know, I haven't found the issues with the inconsistency as, as one would, would think from all the things we learned in pharmacy school. Sure. Another myth busted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, 
you know, I guess we're coming up on time and I, I think I wanted to wrap up with, we can't really have an autoimmune discussion without addressing the gut. Um, so, you know, how important is gut health and, you know, what do you suggest for people to start to repair their gut health um, if they have an autoimmune condition such as Hashimoto's? Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. So I think we may have mentioned a little bit that basically researchers have found three components in every autoimmune condition in order for it to develop. So the person has to have the right genetic predisposition. They have to be exposed to a trigger. So we talked about, you know, like a viral infection or maybe a nutrient deficiency or even um, a toxin or excess nutrient that can trigger the condition. But the third component is always going to be intestinal permeability or a leaky gut. And they found that all three of these things need to be present in order for a person to develop autoimmune condition. And, um, you know, if you take away just one of those things, then the autoimmune condition gets into remission. And that's pretty neat because, you know, we know we can't change our genes right now, at least maybe in 500 years or something we'll be able to. Um, we can't always identify or get rid of the trigger. Some viral infections are kind of, you know, part of our bodies and we can't really get rid of them effectively without like a bone marrow transplant or something, you know, to that ex drastic to that extent. But we can always work on fixing our gut and making it less leaky. So the things that cause leaky gut are going to be foods. So getting off of gluten, dairy, and soy is the first step. Some people may have other food sensitivities that can basically make their gut leaky. Um, the other thing is going to be nutrient deficiencies. So a deficiency in glutamine can cause leaky gut, a deficiency in zinc can cause leaky gut. Um, and so I recommend doing, you know, L-glutamine as a supplement as well as zinc. Having an imbalance of gut bacteria could cause leaky gut. So getting on probiotics, fermented foods, um, covering your bases there. Um, infections of the gut are a biggie that, you know, I think a lot of people in the natural food movement kind of skip over the whole infection thing and they just sort of miss that. But if you have um, an infection, if you have, let's say, um, a protozoa that's living in your intestinal lining, it's constantly making little holes in your gut. No matter what kind of food you eat, you're still going to have that bugger there poking little <laughs> holes in your gut. So you do need to treat that infection if you have one. Um, and people think that infections are something that are that's only found in like remote parts of the world, like, you know, parasitic infections. Like we never even, we hardly learn about them in pharmacy school, right? No, not at all. But they're very, very common in people with autoimmune disease. And I found them very, very commonly in my clients that, you know, have been, that don't respond to diet. So I always tell people, if you've been on the diet for three months and you're still not like in remission, you're still having symptoms, let's look at your gut. Let's see what kind of infections you have there. And we do functional medicine testing, um, BioHealth Lab, and then Genova are two really good labs to test for gut infections to see, you know, what's growing in there. And oftentimes, you know, mo most times when we kill the infection, things just start getting better. Food sensitivities go away. A lot of symptoms go away. And the gut is actually able to heal with all those great things that you're doing. Um, so looking at those kind of infections and also an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine that can cause more like leaky gut even more drastically than gluten can. So a lot of times people that have that overgrowth, um, it, it could even be the, you know, the probiotic bacteria in their small intestine. That's going to be something very, very important to treat to help bring your condition into remission and re reduce your symptoms. Um, one thing I should say, you know, for me, I had irritable bowel syndrome. I had bloating acid reflux, and I had all these symptoms, gut symptoms, so that I'm almost grateful for because they were kind of a clue as to what I needed to work on. But half of the people may not actually, with gut infections, for example, may be asymptomatic. So they may not have constipation, they may not have diarrhea, but they may still have the gut infection on board. So um, so don't let that, you know, if, if you're having symptoms um, and you haven't had a gut test, you know, don't let that stand in your way. If you're not having gut symptoms, I guess is what I meant to say. Yeah, so that's um, that's perfect. You know, I think um, I think the gut is something that in Western medicine we don't really focus on, but um, it's one of the keys in functional medicine. Is you know, if you ha if you can fix the gut, it really kind of um, everything starts to fall in line. 
So I'm glad we wrapped up with that. Um, <laughs> we have covered a lot of information, um, and I know I'm sure there's so many other things I could ask you. If people who are listening have additional questions, you know, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can go to my website. It's thyroidpharmacist.com, and I have, um, like we talked about, uh, information for them with a free um, digestion and depletions chapter, nutrient-dense recipes, as well as um, you know, just kind of like a gluten-free quick start guide by thyroidpharmacist.com slash gift. And I often hang out on Facebook. So facebook.com slash thyroid lifestyle or search for Dr. Isabella Wentz thyroid pharmacist. Um, we do like to post a lot of things on there and every now and then I'll hop on and, you know, answer some questions for people when, when I have, um, you know, when it's a good time of day for me. <laughs> working with clients or, you know, doing interviews or going to yoga class. <laughs> Yoga is important. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or making or making my bone broth or fermented foods. Yes. Yeah. Oh, all fun projects. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Um, and then as we you know finish off, was there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure you mentioned? Um, anything that parting words of advice or wisdom? You know, one of the words that I wanted to kind of impart on everybody is you know don't let somebody else stand in the way of your own health. So if somebody, if you're feeling sick, if you're feeling like there's something wrong with you and you go to a doctor who tells you it's all in your head, you know, don't, don't let somebody tell you that. Go find somebody else that will listen to you and that'll work with you. Um, a lot of times, you know, we know, we know ourselves best. We know our bodies best. We know when something's off. So, so basically listen to yourself, listen to your gut and, and really take charge of your own health because it, you know, that's a lot of times what needs to happen when you're unwell. Awesome. Yeah, it's always um, great to empower people to take to take charge of their health because um, you're you're the one who knows your body best. So, um, thank you for that. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Um, I've had so much fun chatting with you, Isabella, and um, it was an absolute honor. So I'm really glad you made the time and we could have we could connect. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And for everybody at home, I hope that you found this information helpful. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed this show. All the links and resources mentioned today are in the show notes at dranne.com, spelled A-N-H as in healthy. And while you're there, remember to hop on the Food as Medicine VIP email list, and you'll get my free gift. It's the Clean Eating Rules, and it's everything that I learned about nutrition when I was on my bodybuilding journey, which happens to be contrary to many of the things I learned in school. And it's really my number one guide from my experience for how to eat to lose weight, improve your biometrics, and get more energy. You'll also get all my favorite pearls from the show. And this show can be a bit technical at times with lots of details about what foods to eat, what foods to avoid, as well as what supplements to take and in what dosages, etc. So if you're anything like me, you're probably listening to this while driving, cooking, running some errands around the house, walking the dog, etc. And you really aren't in a position to be jotting down notes of all the great information that's shared by the guest. So I've taken all the notes for you. And by hopping on my email list, you'll get all the show pearls delivered right to your inbox so you can refer back to them at any time. Finally, as a VIP email subscriber, you'll get the occasional love letters from me, which are emails sharing some of my favorite recipes and products, upcoming events, new information that I've learned, and just other goodies. So go to dranne.com now and enter your name and email address. Did you like the episode? Then remember to leave us a review. Did you like this episode? Then remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a review. This will really help us with the iTunes rankings and help more people find the show. Remember to tell all your friends because we need more people to hear the food as medicine message. We've got plenty of great guests coming up, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for stopping by and until next time, remember to eat consciously because the world needs a healthy and vibrant you. Mm -hmm.